ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's. The opening to War of the Worlds, the H.G. Wells classic. As men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinised and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinise the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. The fictional aliens in War of the Worlds didn't come for a chat. They came to kill. And there was no point trying to reason with them because nobody on Earth understood their language. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. Sure, it was science fiction, but what if there really are aliens out there? I don't know, somewhere out there. And what if they are, in fact, interested in a little bit of conversation? A good old-fashioned natter. What would we say to them? Indeed, how would we even talk to them? Xenolinguistics is looking at the languages that might be spoken by intelligent extraterrestrials. So obviously, in the current state of knowledge, we don't really know anything at all, in the sense that we're not even sure whether there are any intelligent extraterrestrials, although it's very likely that there are, in my opinion. Ian Roberts, a professor of linguistics at Cambridge University, and one of the drivers behind the recently established Cambridge Institute of Exolanguage. Essentially, the idea is, well, if these creatures are intelligent in the sense of being able to, like us, develop a technological civilization, then they must know something about basic scientific facts, about mathematics, physics, etc. And so it seems almost really impossible to imagine that any civilization could develop that kind of knowledge, the kind of knowledge that we have, without having language. And so then the question arises, well, what would their languages be like? And this is where the distinction between SETI and METI comes in. So I don't know if you heard about SETI. That was um, an organization originally part of NASA in the States. Uh, SETI, S-E-T-I, stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And that was, in fact, funded by the U.S. federal government as part of NASA until sometime in the early 1990s. It still exists. Now it's funded through um, philanthropic donations. But what SETI does is they simply listen and wait for a signal. METI is called Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It's otherwise known as Active SETI. And so the goal of METI, which I'm involved with, is sending out a message, targeting a likely solar system, targeting likely exoplanets orbiting other stars, and sending a message of some kind. And then the form of the message, of course, is much debated. And again, it takes a long time. The nearest one we have now is actually in the nearest star system two hours, Beta Centauri. But even that is four light years away, which means that if we send out a message, it'll take four years to get there. And if there's an immediate reply, it'll take four years to come back. So eight years is the minimum. And of course, all other exoplanets 
are further away, in some cases very much further away. So what makes you confident that if we did make contact with some form of extraterrestrial, that we'd be able to communicate effectively with them, given that the current contact that we have with animals on Earth, say, is extremely limited? Yeah, well, I think the analogy to communicating with animals on Earth is one that's often made, but it's a bit debatable because with the possible exception of dolphins, which we don't know very much about, all other animal species on Earth are considerably less intelligent than us. And remember that the criterion that we're using here for intelligence is the ability to develop a technological civilization. And we are the only terrestrial creatures which have done that. Then your question about you know confidence in being able to communicate with aliens is a very good one. The view that many people hold in this area is, well, language somehow evolved in our species on Earth. We don't know how. We know very little about it. But that must have led to um, our ability to develop the civilization that we have. Any species which, like us, develops some kind of technological civilization will have language, as I just pointed out. And so on their planet, language will have also have evolved. Now, one thing that is very widely believed among people who think about the nature of extraterrestrial life is that the laws of evolution must be the same everywhere. So there must be some counterpart to DNA and some counterpart to natural selection and mutation, essentially the Darwinian laws of evolution. And so that means such civilizations or the, the creatures that develop such civilizations would be fairly similar to us. And similar even to the point of understanding the peculiarities of each other's language? Would you expect them to have developed, say, a similar form of grammar, for instance? I think it's very likely that they would have. I think that the actual structure of their language would be quite similar to human languages in its sort of core essence, if you like. What I think is completely unpredictable, however, is how they might channel their language. So we channel our language through the primarily through speech, through the vocal and oral medium. Of course, we, we also write language, which is a very different medium. And there are various other media for language, including sign language, notably in deaf communities. What I think is very hard to predict is how extraterrestrials might channel their language, whether through some counterpart of sign or writing or speech. Very, very hard to say. And we'll only know that when we find them. So, Professor Roberts' work and the reason for setting up the Cambridge Institute of Exolanguage is to try and imagine what the language of a possible alien life form might be like. But he's also aware of the fact that we humans, as part of our own space exploration, may one day come across life forms that are similar to ours, but far more primitive. Yes, yes, that's true. Well, we may even, I think, yet find simple life forms, even in our own solar system, on Mars or on uh, the moons of Jupiter, notably Europa, which NASA is just sending a probe out to. That's a moon of Jupiter, which has water. Of course, it's frozen because it's very cold out there. But underneath what is probably 100 kilometers of ice, there may well be some kind of life form, but it's extremely unlikely that it would be anything technologically advanced. In actual fact, the overwhelming likelihood is any civilization, any technological civilization we make contact with will be much more advanced than us because we are, in technological terms, a very young 
civilization. We've only been emitting radio waves out into the universe for just over 100 years. So they may well be asking themselves, can we communicate with these beings which we know as humans? That's right. Yeah, this is this is a very intriguing point. In actual fact, I think that any extraterrestrial civilization that is significantly more advanced than us is probably aware of our existence. And then the question is whether they will try to communicate with us. And here there are all kinds of, um, you may have heard of the zoo theory, which is that there are advanced uh, civilizations out there that know about us, and they are deliberately leaving us alone in order to see how we develop, as it were. It's a far-fetched theory, but it's not implausible, I think. We can establish contact with very rudimentary techniques, such as demonstrating to them that we know, for example, the value of pi to a certain number of decimal places, that we know the Pythagorean theorem, that we know about the structure of uh, atoms. You know, we have some knowledge of subatomic physics. That you can kind of demonstrate, but of course, that's only just saying, look, hey, this is what we know. You know, we're pretty smart. But any genuine communication is going to have to depend on language. It's going to be absolutely essential. Well, Professor Ian Roberts from the University of Cambridge, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Language and the power it has to improve communication. But let's not forget, it can also diminish it. And sometimes it can compromise or even subvert good intentions. Take the language of climate change, for instance. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable. The heat is unbearable. And the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. They all tell us this is code red. The nation and the world are in peril. That's not hyperbole. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. I want you to act as if the house was on fire, because it is. Well-intentioned, but not always helpful. That's the assessment of Noel Castry, a professor of society and environment from the University of Technology, Sydney. People and organisations that are choosing to use these terms routinely are a little bit between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, if you don't use these emotive, sort of emotionally charged words to describe what you see as a serious, serious problem, both now and particularly in the future, then you probably feel like you're failing in your duty to sound the alarm. On the other hand, though, by using those terms, you immediately understand that a lot of people just can't relate to them. And I'll give you two reasons why. When someone like Antonio Guterres talks about a climate emergency and uses the term global boiling, which he tried to popularise last year because it was the hottest year on record for atmospheric temperatures, as I'm sure you know, when he uses those kind of terms, the, the problem is that a lot of people in their daily lives are not experiencing a climate crisis. They don't have excessive heat. They don't have wildfires on their doorsteps. They don't have extreme flood events that have been caused by climate change. So for them in their daily lives, those terms don't mean very much. The second reason people often don't relate to them is that they're sort of future-facing terms. They're saying, look, if we don't do something about this problem now, it's going to be significantly worse in 10, 15, 20 or 50 years. And of course, the difficulty for people today is 
sort of empathizing or imaginatively trying to situate themselves in the future with those people who are either very young today or not even born. And it's very, very difficult. I think a lot of people are going to switch off. And once you use a term like global boiling, I mean, where do you go from there? Absolutely, yes. It sort of ups the verbal ante, doesn't it, considerably. For many people, it just seems hyperbolic or extreme language. It starts to lose credibility, I think, with a lot of people. So it does risk this sort of reaction from people who think that all this is is really rhetoric and overstated. And that, says Professor Castry, could lead to an increase in the sort of political division that has significantly hindered our environmental efforts to date. There are several countries worldwide, notoriously the United States at the moment, where political polarisation is extreme, where people don't seem to be speaking a common language. And I guess one of the challenges for people like Guterres and other people who use the language of catastrophe is to create some hope and sort of motivate people, not scare them to death. And when it comes to the issue of how to better communicate climate issues, you argue, don't you, that we need to first challenge the dystopian and salvation narratives. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so um, I think one of the tricky things about using terms like catastrophe and crisis to discuss deadly serious real-world issues is that there's a bit of a Hollywood background here. And, you know, a lot of us are used to seeing those sort of catastrophe movies where, you know, it all goes wrong across the entire globe and there's sort of a few ravaged humans wandering in some sort of despoiled landscape. I don't think that's very realistic. You know, if we're going to talk about a catastrophe in the future, a crisis in the next 50, 100, 200 years, it will be a sort of slow catastrophe in lots of different parts of the world. We do have time to sort of tackle the issues and adapt. And equally, the salvation narrative isn't isn't very realistic either. The one where, you know, technology or a bunch of wise political leaders sort of save the day and the rest of us don't have to do very much. I think that's equally unrealistic. You know, we need to be realistic about what the environmental challenges will be. They will be things in our daily lives like extreme heat, like periodic floods, like crop failures in some parts of the world because of droughts. Those are the kind of things we have to deal with. They're very practical issues. They're very real issues. And they're not the sort of Hollywood or sort of novelistic dystopian futures or the the sort of technology saves the day story either. It's, It's not going to be like that, I think. You also make the point that while many of us would look at the current climate challenge and say, you know, yes, it's an extremely important issue to address both now and into the future, We still have to appreciate that other crises and challenges will come up and that they could be seen to be more important by certain people. Yes, absolutely. So the global climate crisis doesn't sort of trump all of the things on the planet right now. There are lots of very immediate things we have to tackle. So, yes, there are immediate things that matter and we have to strike a balance. And again, I think one of the problems when someone like Gutierrez, who I think is otherwise justified in using terms like a, a climate catastrophe, but one of the problems that he faces when he uses that language is people think, well, hang on, you know, what about all those other important things that we need to deal with? And of course, the answer is we have to deal with them all simultaneously. And that's the tricky thing. So these things, as I say, are real. But I do understand why people switch off when this melodramatic, as they might see it, language is used all the time. Noel Castry from the University of Technology, Sydney. Now, from the inadvertent harm that language can do to the very positive benefits it can have on individuals and communities. Anthropologist Gerald Roach is a co-chair of the Global Coalition of Language Rights, and his research focus is on linguistic marginalisation, Indigenous communities, and the power language offers in restoring hope and health. We know now fairly clearly that there is a strong link between speaking an Indigenous language or maintaining a heritage language and health and well-being. 
So Indigenous people have been telling us this for a good long while now, but we also have academic research in a variety of different disciplines like um, psychology, public health, uh, linguistics. So it's not so much the loss of the language itself, it's the marginalization, the political subordination and the discrimination that go along with a language being lost. So a really important thing to realize is that community typically won't just give up its language for the fun of it. It typically takes place in the context of some form of colonization, political domination, and in response to some form of violence and coercion coming from the state. So it's really those processes that are at the heart of that relationship, I think. So we we have studies that have demonstrated this link over and over again that show us that when a community is forced to give up their language, it has impacts on suicide rates, it has impacts on physical health measured by things like the rate of diabetes within a community. We also have studies showing that it impacts on people's mental and emotional well-being as well. So just to give an example of this kind of relationship from my own research, I worked with Tibetan communities in China over a number of years. And this kind of relationship between language and and health and well-being was really clearly demonstrated during the COVID pandemic. So the communities that I worked with in China, they're not recognized as really existing by the Chinese government. So the government doesn't provide translation services for them. It doesn't give them an educational service in their language. It doesn't provide them with doctors or medical services in their languages. So during the COVID pandemic, a lot of volunteers from these communities mobilized to translate uh, important health information themselves. They were kind of crowdsourcing translations and disseminating them through their communities because they realized instantly that if they didn't have access to up-to-date information, if they didn't have knowledge about what was happening with the pandemic elsewhere, that they were not going to be able to respond in ways that kept them all safe. So understanding this link between health and Indigenous language is important if you're trying to, for instance, as you just said, launch a health initiative on behalf of the people. Yeah, that's right. So if you're trying to launch a health initiative, there's at least three reasons why language has to be taken into consideration. One is that you have to consider whether or not people will simply understand the information that you're trying to spread, also to what extent they're going to understand it, whether they have a like a superficial, shallow understanding or a deep understanding of what's going on and what's required of them. But there's there's also the issue of trust. People have to trust that information. They have to feel that they relate to it if they're going to follow that information. So that relates to information that's being disseminated during a pandemic. It also relates to just any information that is part of the give and take of any sort of medical consultation. And the third reason is that it's also important that communities are listened to in this kind of situation. We sometimes think of the relationship between the healthcare system and people as a one-way street where it's just like, information being 
disseminated from the government, from the healthcare system to people. But for that system to be effective, it also has to be responsive and listen to people's experience on the ground, to hear from them what's working and what's not working, to understand how the situation is developing differently in different local contexts, to take their cultural background into consideration and so on. So listening is equally important. So If, as you say, there's evidence that the disappearance of language, the oppression of language can affect a community's health, is the reverse true? If a a language is revitalised, can that have an impact on the health of individuals and the community? Do we know that? Yeah, the reverse is also true. So we have evidence showing that when people participate in programs to maintain or strengthen or take back a community's language that has a direct impact on their emotional and mental well-being. It improves social ties within the community and all of those things, individual well-being, community ties, all of those are really foundational to people's health and well-being. So one that comes to mind is an example in Canada where there were some reports collected after a participation in a language revitalization program where they were basically got people to come along to classes to learn their ancestral indigenous language and then collected information from them after a period of weeks about how they felt about that. And that was where these reports came from of increased mental and emotional well-being, improved and strengthened social ties and so on. Now, we're currently in the UN International Decade for Indigenous Languages. It it kicked off in 2022. Does that, in a sense, give added impetus to the study of this connection between language and health? Yes, I think it certainly does. It's really a key period where governments all around the world are supposed to be focusing on this issue and making real progress towards supporting Indigenous languages everywhere. So in Australia, we have recommendations going back almost a decade now to look more carefully, extensively and rigorously into this connection between language and health. Those recommendations were made in 2014 in the second National Indigenous Languages Survey. So the fact that we're in the, at the beginning of this UN International Decade for Indigenous Languages not only provides a context within which Australia can look at this more carefully, but also where we can share those findings and provide support for Indigenous peoples in our region and all around the world who are confronted with this often very harmful relationship between language oppression and and poor health. Anthropologist Gerald Roach from La Trobe University. Now, finally today, to the role we humans play in shaping the world. We've had such an impact on Earth that we now talk of living in the Anthropocene, the name for a new geological epoch that acknowledges our dominance of nature and of all living things. It's a popular idea, says Queen Mary University's John Adenatier, but always putting humans at the centre of events is also problematic. He's part of a new academic push called the Forum on Decentering the Human. Going back to Western tradition, Christian tradition, perhaps other tradition like Judaism, Islam, humans are the center of the world. And apparently God gave humans dominion over the entire world. And this idea that's been with us for a long time is still with us and perhaps needs to be challenged nowadays, given 
many pressing issues. Humans have been contributing to climate change over the past few decades, and uh, humans have been trying to solve as much as there is political will. But of course, humans are not the only ones that are affected. First of all, other animals, they suffer the consequences of the severe weather and climate conditions change. And even, of course, the environment, the issues that climate change brings about, such as deforestation and global warming affects the environment as a whole. So one of the aims of the forum is to look at maybe taking the human not out of the picture entirely, but looking at how other beings are being affected, of course, not only by climate change, but other pressing issues that affect our present condition. So you and your colleagues, you're not questioning the notion of the Anthropocene as such, but you're just saying that we need to actually look beyond the human in that aspect. Well, we have different colleagues at the forum, and some of them may at some point be questioning the way we conceptualize the Anthropocene, but we definitely want to understand how the Anthropocene not only affects humans. Yes, so we take a, a wider view, and we think that this is actually very important, that when we conduct research, whether into climate change or other issues, that we do not only take the human perspective, and that's the, the main purpose of the forum, is to question anthropocentrism. But has it actually harmed the scientific quest? Well, I will only speak in, in the area of my expertise, which in, in this particular topic is on animal rights. The focus on putting humans at the center of our moral universe has, of course, affected other animals. For example, the way that other animals are exploited in the trillions is not only a moral disaster, but actually exacerbates some of the issues uh, such as climate change, deforestation. So yes, putting the humans at the center of our moral universe has not only severe consequences for humans, but also for other beings as well. If there is a growing questioning of the, the central position of humans in the world, as you say, what are the factors that are driving that reassessment? Well, we have been speaking about climate change. Uh, this has been a wine pressing issue that has invited scholars, academics, activists to think of new paradigms that can help us solve the current crisis. But of course, there are other issues that have encouraged us to think more broadly. For example, the development of artificial intelligence, uh, which has been a growing development and promises to bring about all sorts of social and technological, of course, but also political changes. Now, the physical makeup of this forum, you're calling for researchers and scientists to join you. Are you looking for, for people from, with expertise from all disciplines? Well, the forum started as a collaboration between experts in humanities and social sciences, but we have been trying to branch out to other experts. And in fact, we are in the process of leading a series of talks together with colleagues in the natural sciences as well. And our aim is to have interdisciplinary talks and interdisciplinary research where we bring experts that are knowledgeable about natural sciences, say experts on climate change or experts on animal minds, to discuss these pressing issues with experts in the humanities, such as lawyers, geographers, historians, in order to tackle the various problems that we encounter in an interdisciplinary way. Every researcher that is a member of the forum is independent. 
we encourage people to collaborate and that's why we we have the forum so that different people from different expertise can focus on this question of the importance of decentering the human. So the ultimate aim is really to produce and catalyze research that problematizes anthropocentrism. Uh, we're trying not to be too prescriptive in terms of asking our members to look at anthropocentrism in a negative way. There may be members that actually think it's important to center the human. However, we think that it's, it's very important to problematize anthropocentrism. So the ultimate aim is, is really to catalyze research that problematizes anthropocentrism. Questioning anthropocentrism does not entail that we deny human responsibility for many of the issues that are happening, but that we think more broadly of how human action affects others. And so we shift the discussion beyond human interests to the interests of other beings as well. Dr. John Adenatier from Queen Mary University in Belfast, and he's a founding member of the Forum on Decentering the Human. My thanks to co-producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. This is Future Tense. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.